Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, everybody. Uh, Good evening to you and yours from us at Teachers Talk Radio. Um, This is The Late Show with me. I'm back after a couple of weeks um, out. Um, It's really nice to be back on TTR. Um, Hi to Nathan in the background. Um, Hi to everybody who is listening back to this. Obviously, you might have clicked play on the recording if you have. Thank you very much indeed um, for joining us for this. Um, And if you've just joined us listening live, so Ashley, Andrew and anybody else who might be coming in to listen, welcome to you. Um, This show is brought to you by John Cat Educational, who are leading providers and publishers of educational resources across the UK and across the world. Um, If you want to check out the latest uh, releases from John Cat, you can visit them at johncatbookshop.com and you can benefit from 20% off using the code JCTTR2324 at checkout for 20% off anything. Um, This evening's show, uh, we are going to be focusing on two things. Um, First segment is with Katie, and we are going to be talking about homeschooling. Uh, It's a really hot topic at the moment, huge rise in homeschooling across the UK, and in fact, just across the world, really, certainly the Western world, um, in terms of the popularity of homeschooling. Um, So I really want to dig into what homeschooling actually is, um, what people believe about homeschooling um, and what we can learn from home education as well. Um, That They're the sort of things I wanted to dig into in part one. Part two of the show, which is going to kick off broadly around 8.15, um, I've got David, who is the head teacher of one of the schools within Astria Academies. And he, you may know, posted a picture of one of his techniques that he's introducing in the school around using clipboards uh, to observe teaching and learning or observe behaviors in the classroom, which is part of the sort of teach like a champion champion repertoire so i'll be talking to him in the second half of the show hopefully about that as well so that's coming up later um katie i think you're here um are you there if you want to unmute on the bottom left of your screen hello how are you i'm great thank you how are you doing excellent not too bad well first of all do you want to introduce yourself and also just tell me a little bit about your story because I know you've been a home educator for 15 years which is well it's a long time so t- tell me about your story and tell me you know tell me about that yeah so I've got four children um they're now almost 18 17 14 and 11 um we've always home educated them we actually wow. kind of came to that decision as a plan a by the time the eldest was about just over a year old so that's we've been around the home education world for a really long time um, as part of that I've run local groups I've been involved in supporting on sort of local and national groups so I've kind of seen it across all those years as as things have grown and people have you know more people have to it yeah that's that's incredible so I mean tell me a little bit about that decision then um to homeschool why and how did that come about um so originally I knew a few people you know kind of a few years above us who were home educating and that kind of 
yeah, it seemed like an interesting idea. I really enjoyed spending time with my children. We'd already arranged our life so that I was able to do that full time. Um, and I just didn't want to stop, basically. I, we looked around at the local schools when the time came, but we were already pretty sure by then that we just, you know, I didn't want to give them away. <laughs> I was enjoying yeah. looking after them. I could, anything that I could see that a school could offer was possible for us to arrange for ourselves. But we could do that in a way that suited them. You know, was able to work to their needs. Yeah. Focus on what they wanted. Well, I mean, obviously, you don't have to go into this if you don't want to or whatever. But was there, I mean, from a from a practical and sort of financial point of view, you know, was that was was that a big consideration? I mean, it was. It was. I mean, yeah. it was sort of part of. You know, a whole lifestyle change that followed yeah. having children, which I didn't expect at all. I thought I was going to be back at work at six months and, yeah. you know, we'll find a good childminder and that would be it. But when they actually came along, turned out that wasn't what we wanted to do. Um, we were living in London at the time, so we moved out of London and sort of as part of that arranged things so that we could, you know, survive on one income. Yeah. 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 So so you, so did you mention you had three children? Is that right? Four four children right so and what so at the beginning of that process at what age did you start the homes the home education I mean because we'd thought about it from an early age it wasn't there wasn't really a step change it was just a continuation of what we had already done um you know we part of what we wanted from home education was that level of flexibility so we were very informal and play-based when they were a lot younger um, yeah right sort of, obviously as they get older and they want you know they their sorts of plans and interests we're going to lead them towards GCSEs so we you know we moved into that from the time they were kind of 12-ish and sort of the younger ones got structured a little bit earlier on because they had to fit in with the way the family was working for the older ones got but it's as they got a bit older, because obviously you mentioned there there was an informality at the beginning. It was it was play centered and so on. Mm. Um, as they got a bit older, did you introduce some of the things that a school would introduce? Did you introduce stuff like a timetable or like you know how did you how did you structure their days? So we did get to that point. As I said, it wasn't a big step change. It was sort of a gradual increase in things that we needed to do um and obviously with four children in different stages at one point you know we, there was nine GCSEs between two of them going on in a year there was two younger children you know some families will keep it a lot more flexible it just wasn't going to work for us at that time but it was very much you know this is what you need to get done on these days so long as that happens it's not particularly you know we're not nine o'clock you must be sitting here 10 o'clock you then move on to that this is what needs to get done let's figure out yeah. how to do it so I mean one of the questions that I sort of asked is when you sort of set off on this journey um there's a lot of people out there who, who would be I guess concerned about the socialization element right for, yeah. for home yeah. educated children I mean um, that's always kind of the big challenge is that oh if only they had friends how are they going to do that um and it really isn't 
just isn't like that because again particularly if you've done it from the start you you seek those out it's a different style of socializing so you know we will go and they'll spend an entire day free to socialize with a big group of friends that you know some of them they've known since birth it's you know a real real nice group I've got more kids come along to my home ed group that I run than go to some of our local schools it's, it's actually there's quite a big social scene there yeah. Um, yeah and also the other side of that when you're looking at you know not everybody chooses it from the start like we did if they've come out later on you know the school isn't actually that great a social experience for everybody so you're not necessarily comparing it to the no. child who really gets on at school and is hanging out with their mates no no that but undoubtedly, is how it is for everyone no i completely understand that but undoubtedly you know when you think of a let's say i mean it might be slightly different primary but imagine the average secondary school you might have i don't know 800 a thousand students in there right so you are getting a huge range potentially a huge range of backgrounds and sort of uh, outlooks and all the rest of it right from from that huge cohort of 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 people of, of students so you know i guess what what someone might ask is does it sort of bubble them a little bit if that makes sense i'm trying to put it in a better way but does it you know are they more limited in in how yes it comes back i guess to socialization but it's not as simple as that is it because they're still socializing as you've just said with friends with you know groups of other children whatever right i get all that but just in terms of access to children who are from a huge range of sorts of backgrounds and everything else what about that side of it to be honest that again is actually it's far more diverse within the home educating community yeah than you would think because again people have come to it for a lot of different reasons and you know across all yeah. of the range and again yeah. probably my kids have had a, a wider experience than they would have in our local rural school just for us um so you do and because it's a smaller community you tend to have to get on with everybody with whoever is there because it's it depends on the area obviously if you really really wanted to pick and choose um you know a particular social group you could and you could probably do that more easily in the same way as you could if you choose you know a grammar school or an independent school yeah 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 because i mean i was going to say you know that, that my my sort of idea there was was of your you know very broad sweep comprehensive school you know that sort of thing i mean in some sort of independent schools it would be very sort of um you know, probably streamlined anyway, in that sense, you know. Yeah. I don't um, know that because I've never been to an independent school, but I would imagine that it would be. Oh, no, yeah, same here, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I did a poll, which you've seen on my on my ex account, mm -hmm. and I asked people, do you overall believe that the huge growth in homeschooling is a good or bad thing? Now, I'll be honest, the results surprised me of that because... I, for me, I am on the neither good or, nor, nor bad. I, for me, it would just depend on, I, I don't see it as an inherently good or bad thing. I just see it as a thing, right? Mm. That's, that's how I approach it anyway, personally. Um, and, you know, I think that the, there will be some pros and cons to, to it. From a, And, and I, I was asking people from an overall perspective. I wasn't saying, is it good for teachers? Is it good for students? Is it good for families? And so on. It was just 
asking everybody overall what they think. And I think it's on 62 or 63% bad. Did, mm. did, did that result surprise you? Like what, how do you, or is that something that you would have predicted? I would probably have predicted that. Yes, it doesn't surprise me from the overall point of view. And I don't well, it did for me. think that's right. But I think that that is, is quite a prevalent attitude that actually uh, home education is a bit of a scary thing. Um, I don't quite understand why that. I mean, mm. I understand people thinking it's it's a bad idea that children coming out of school when they don't really want to so when they yeah and from that point of view yes it's it's bad that that happens but you know it's good that they have an option that there is an alternative yeah no absolutely i mean the the full results were good thing 9.8 percent bad thing 62.9 percent neither good nor bad 20.2 percent no opinion 7.1 percent i mean some of the replies um were were interesting in the sense Mm. of you know, there were quite sort of, um, I guess, sort of you had the full range of reasons, pro and con in the replies. You know, you had Mr. Brown, who said it's good because schools often can't provide the flexibility um, or management that the children need. Um, he said that. Ray said, as a head of year, I saw countless safeguarding referrals that would never have been caught if children were kept cloistered by their abusers, not all families are safe. Um, schools help protect young people. What do you think of that one? Is that something that does that make you? Because obviously, you you have done homeschooling for fifteen years. You've mm-hmm. obviously done it very successfully. You've obviously met a lot of other home educators. But does that side of it come into it? The safeguarding side, and I mean that is. It's sort of the big fear, I think, isn't it? That people are worried that it's, you know, parents are doing this for an abusive reason. Um, and if you you sort of add the statistics and things, there's no particular evidence that there's any more chance of someone being, you know, abused within home education than without. Um, and to me, I think it's, it's no different, really, to the position of a preschool child. You know, safeguarding, of course it's a concern you know not every single parent has the best interests of their child yeah. at heart where they need to or not so it is you know you need to have ways to react to concerns where they arise but I don't think you need to automatically be concerned just because a parent has decided that they're going to do this part of education themselves any more than if you've got a two-year-old that doesn't go to nursery full-time you need to be more concerned about them just because of that one thing I want to get into a little bit is curriculum, right? Because mm-hmm. um, there's been a lot of debate, obviously, in the last few years about curriculum and sort of particularly along the lines of, I guess, there's, there's also been debates around impartiality in schools as well. Yeah. And, and in terms of the way children teach and also which subjects are selected within a curriculum, right? So as a home educator... Were, were you aware, very sort of aware of that in, in the way? Because it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, like, you know, sort of you want to let children work it out themselves a little bit, don't you? But equally, like, how difficult is that to keep your own biases in check, if you know what I mean, in, 
in a home environment. If that's important yeah. or not, I don't know. Maybe that's not important. And I mean, it's it's a balance that every family has. Obviously, there's going to be things that you as a family are just more familiar with and happen to have in your life anyway. I mean, we're yeah. sort of more on the maths and sciencey things. So that's the sort of things that we have around and are interested in. Um, you know, for some families that might be more arts, that might be more, you know, languages. Languages is a thing that as a family, we, you know, not really had we've had to go out to other sources for that so you have to as a family be aware of what experiences your children might like that they're not going to automatically get and again that's something that actually does come out of of home ed groups because they'll see their friends and maybe their friends will be interested in something that they're not and they'll bring that in to you and you can sort of see that and go right okay so perhaps we need to feed this a bit and find some other you know ways of getting that in front of them so that they do have that wide experience yeah, because that's that would be that's an interesting point in the sense of, you know, I guess, you know, that sort of diversity of of opinions and perspectives. And and yes, I guess expertise, which was going to be my next question in terms of, mm. you know, the gaps in your own knowledge or the gaps in your own expertise. And and also, I don't know what your actual sort of job is, Katie, because I haven't asked you that apart from obviously being a home educator before being a home educator what you were doing but is the that sort of thing of I can't be an I can't be I, I can't have enough knowledge of everything to do it yeah I that's mean, I would think if you know what I mean I'd be like I can't do this like I don't know I can't do it but what you I don't know how you did it <laughs> yeah well, I mean, what you don't do is you're not sitting at front you know at the front of the, the table of your kids explaining it to them you're finding the resources that they need and even in the subject you know, I I was actually a software engineer so and I did right. a maths degree so kind of like maths I could right. theoretically do that but I don't I yes. just give them a textbook I find them a program and I'm there to answer the questions and if there's a bit stuck on I say well okay let's go and investigate we'll go and look it up we'll see if we can find out to that um, and again we have been in a position where when it comes to GCSEs in some areas, we've got in um, online classes. So I would tend to do that. I think for English and history, I've usually done that. But for pretty much everything else, we've been able to do it, you know, through textbooks, through resources. It's it's finding those things. And then you're providing the scaffolding, of making sure they're doing it, making sure they're engaging, helping them if they do get stuck. You know, providing that support and mentoring, but not sitting there teaching 15 subjects yeah but I mean do you do you find because obviously that it sounds from what you said that that's more I guess a facilitating approach a little bit more in in at home than you know presumably you you would rarely sit the children down and and actually sort of you know have a board and, and sort of teach at them yeah, if you know yeah, what I mean I don't I don't do that what I think the closest I come is we have a, something we, I call morning time um, and that's reading stories to them. So, I, you know, I will read stuff out. But, yeah, yeah, I don't I'm not planning on teaching a lesson to the children. I'm so how do you how, how, how do you assess them then? So, you know, do you do you assess them or do you just say, you know, do I think they know this as their parent? Because obviously that's a very different thing than as their teacher, because you know them really well. I mean, do, do you assess them all the time? Not at all until 
you know, yeah, late, really. stage, late stages of GCSE. I mean, I assess in that they're my children. I spend time with them. Yeah. And I'm like, are they learning? Are they growing? And, I, and I, I've never tried to follow a national curriculum. As I said, we were very much play-based throughout primary ages at least. But it's always been about, are they interested? Are they engaging in things? Do they have, you know, something that they're working towards? And how can I help with that? It doesn't, at least, you know, up until we get to that curriculum stage of GCSEs where you have to follow what's on the spec or, you know, what's in the textbook and check that they do know that stuff. You know, up until then, I don't care that much precisely what they're doing, so long as it's something they're interested in and engaged in and working towards that they can see that what they put in has a result and gets them where they want to go that's kind of my my key aim got you do do, do the kids ever do your kids ever go mum we're, we're fed up of seeing you now <laughs> <laughs> like do they ever just go you know you've been everything to us and, and i'm sure you've done an amazing job so this isn't a slight on you but i'm just thinking of me now it's as a child it probably would have been like i i yeah i don't know how i would have would have seen well, it. i guess if you grow up with it it's different isn't it if you've grown up from a very early age but were there ever points where they were like we want to go to school not exactly at the point of secondary school particularly with my eldest because you know secondary school it seemed a bit scarier and I knew that was a good transition point if they were ever going to go into school that would be a good time so we did go around and visit a couple of the local schools you know sort of with her and say look yeah. is this something that you're interested in you know there's pros there's cons what we do at home now you know or have a bit of an idea of what happens at school you know yeah. would you like to do it wasn't completely and utterly you decide it would have been you know, a conversation, but I wanted her to know what was available, whether that was something she wanted. And the main thing yeah. that came out of that was she she did quite like that idea of peer learning. She didn't really want to do it all of the time. And so that's when we first started looking for, um, you know, an online class, which she didn't do for till she was sort of 13. Got but you. then that gave Got her so... that kind of bit of a yeah. peer experience, a bit of, you know, input from somebody else. So, you know, at that sort of teenage late secondary stage they do maybe one or two a week you know subjects that they were doing through an online class and then that just gave them a little bit of difference a bit more exposure and we've always made sure that you know we're going out we're seeing their friends we're having social groups often that's involved me starting a social group for them to you know for other people to come along to because that you know that is important you need you need basically do you think that that I mean, just coming back, sort of, I sort of touched on this earlier, but that sort of the the idea. So when when someone is at home, and I use the word someone, not just children, I'm talking like anybody, right? You're at home. It's a very comfortable environment, isn't it? For you, mm. well, it, it should. It, you would hope it would be. It might not be, <laughs> but you know, you you would hope it's going to be what the, the the place where you feel most comfortable, right? Yeah. It, you're, you're aiming for that to be at home so one of my questions slash concerns if you like would be is a certain level of discomfort a good thing for children to experience based on what's going to happen after they're 18 years old 
But yeah. the counter argument to that, of course, would be, well, actually, the world's changed. So, so a lot of people, you can work at home now, right? So there is that sort of idea that, well, hang on, the world has changed. But how, how would you respond to that element of, it's almost like it, school can present you situations that you may face later on that, that in a home environment, you just wouldn't face. So, and I think that is part of knowing your child. And as I said, that bit where you want to see them growing, you want to see them engaging. And part of that is stepping a bit outside the comfort zone. What, you know, what that is, is going to be different for every child. I mean, within the home education community, it's overrepresented in children with varying different levels of, of neurodiversity and needs. So for them, you know, what might be stretching them out of their comfort zone might be different to you know my kids but you can find those experiences and you can you can bring those in I mean might have done martial arts they've done music you know they've performed in concerts they've they've had competitions you know all of those things are available it's just it's that getting that balance of what what you encourage them into that that's the thing because I don't know because I my school that I went to it, it was a state school it it was a normal state school but it was pretty strict you know like it was quite you know I remember it was all the all the sort of you know typical things you'd think like you know but but in the 90s right it was like (laughs) getting balled at and getting you know sort of yeah it was very it was it was traditional I guess traditional for now in the 90s it was probably completely normal right um but I don't know whether those experiences were good for me or not as an adult I don't know but I don't know, like, without those experiences, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the impact of not having those experiences would have been, because obviously I, ha- I had them. So I don't yeah. know. And I don't think anyone does. I mean, you can't know what you would have been like had you done something else. And, you know, that goes for whether you pick this primary school or the one at the other side of town as much as it does whether you home educate or not. In fact, my yeah. eldest did. I asked her whether, you know, she thought home education was a good idea whether she'd enjoyed it whether she did and she goes well i don't know <laughs> it's what happened yeah. it's all i know yeah. so exactly it's, <laughs> yeah. it's what they know yeah how does how does the concept of competition and achievement differ in in a home education setting versus a school environment well i think it gives you the opportunity to tailor that to your children i mean even obviously i've got four children that's quite a small sample size but they are all very very different in terms of what they're interested in what motivates them you know one of them is pretty competitive she'll seek out a lot of you know competitive opportunities another one has just got zero interest in that whatsoever she just doesn't want to you know she'll she's will drive herself along her own path the things that she wants to do but she's got no interest in where she is compared to somebody else and school sort of it it is very much competitive one thing also we see you know among the home education groups is there's just very little jockeying for position, mm. you know, and in school, because yeah. everybody is doing the same academic things at the same time, whether you want to or not, whether you're encouraging that or not, everyone knows where they stand in relation to the rest of the class. You know, they yeah, know if they're the kid who gets it easily. They know if they're the kid who doesn't, you know, whether it's where, you know, however much you try to support that, they know the other kids know. Yeah. Uh, and that becomes a thing which it just doesn't really within home education because it's that's just not what 
what everybody is, is thinking about. They're just thinking about how they're going to pay out and get on together at the moment. Yeah, no, that's, that's super interesting. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, my, my experience is that. I mean, I knew I was in like the, the bottom set for maths, right? Um, out of like, I don't know, six sets or something. <laughs> ridiculous. Um, which is hilarious because my mum was a maths teacher. So it's, it's utterly hilarious. Um, but yeah, so I, there is, and even in, even in the, the mixed groups, you know, there is, yeah, you're at, there is inherent competition. Again, you could ask, well, is that life? You know, is that emulating life? I, d- I don't know. Like, do you, do, how old's your eldest now? She's almost 18. So she's off okay. to university in September. And we, yeah. they've moved into sixth form at that sort of 16. For us, that kind of feels like the right age to move on to yeah. that, that state system. So my oldest two are now at sixth form. Ah, I see. Right. So they've gone to college. Right. Yeah. And and how have they adapted to that? Um, yeah, really well. They're, yeah. Just seem, yeah. sort of seamless, normal transition. Because it yeah. is a big change, isn't it? It's like a massive change. College is different to school, granted, but still a big change. Really big change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so they had had you know, classes and homework. And again, one of the things that we looked for was that experience. I didn't want it to be taking over their entire life but I did want them to have the experience of another teacher of having work that they had to get done by a certain time so they'd had that one or two subjects a year that had been that bit structured but yeah I mean again they're both very different kids so they've they've approached it in their own different ways but they've both got on really well and in terms of like one of the questions I've always wondered is as well is what about time management and, and efficiency I mean when I was a teenager, I could have literally slept till two in the afternoon every day, quite happily, and then gone to bed at like 3 a.m. Um, no, in fact, I'd just get up at two and I'd go to bed at probably like 11. I just love sleeping, right, all the time. So there's no way. I mean, that would have been the first thing for me of like, I'm not getting up at seven o'clock for school anymore. <laughs> I just don't well, want to. And- Again, there's lots of different ways of arranging it, depending on what your kid needs, what the family setup is. But there's no real reason why you have to get up at seven in the morning other than to get to school. No, there isn't. So, like, again, we've gone on, this is roughly what we want to get done, as long as that gets done and everybody's happy and it's working out, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, this this is it. I mean, again, that sort of reflects the world of work and the way that's changing in the sense mm. of, you know, if you're working remotely, for example, if you have a remote role, fully remote role, the, the company or the business might say, right, we've got all this to get through. You can basically choose your hours that you do yeah. it in, more or less. You can clock in, clock out, you know, and all the rest of it, and it's flexible working, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so you, as adults... Yeah you choose that sort of environment you choose whether that flexibility is important to you you choose whether working with other people is important to you you have some of that capability and you know nobody gets to choose precisely what they want to do that's you know there's all boundaries but you do get to to control it and to shift it and decide what things are important to you so it's just kind of extending that within children and as parents you have the role to make sure that that's not going too far but that's mm. you know that's just part of parenting isn't it as what's and what's if, the healthy so point is, for my children 
it's okay. We're, we're coming towards the end now. I've got, still got a couple of questions. In terms of regulation for, for you, was, mm. what was there any? Or was it a case of, I'm just going to sort of self-evaluate here whether I'm doing a good job or not? Do you know what I mean? Like, was so, there any regulation? I mean, for us, because we'd never been to school and, you know, we're very well known locally, but no one ever had any concerns that they raised. So we actually didn't have any contact from anybody from the LA up until up until a couple of years ago when I volunteered as a school governor. So that kind of brought me on to the um brought me to their attention. But up until then it's you know, it was just my job as his parenting to check that, that my children were doing all right. Um and I think what we've seen in England is that there's been more and more um involvement from local authorities. So if you've deregistered the local authorities should get notified. If anyone raises any concerns, the local authority will get notified and then they will contact you usually sort of once a year um, and they'll ask some questions about what it is that you're doing. So it's, I mean, the legal responsibility sits with the parent. It's the parent's job to educate their child. Um, but there are sort of checks and balances the same way as there are with any other duties that can kick in. If you think that might not be happening, then there's actions they can take to, you know, to start either guiding you towards that or eventually to say, look, no, they need to go to school because you're not providing a suitable education and that's what you've got to do. Yeah. Do you, do you think that homeschooling, just before I ask this question, because um, it's one of my last ones, just want to give a big shout out to everyone listening live. Uh, Nathan, Tom, Catherine, California, I call her, Lucy, Dale, Paul, Mystery Primary, Alex, Let's Logic, I see Kat, Ashley, Nils, Amy and Michael, um, thank you very much. And of course, everybody else who has been sort of dropping in and out of the the sessions. It's been um, it's been a really good conversation. So, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, do you think home education is the preserve of the affluent in the sense that, um, you know, the world is rapidly changing, and when I think about things like PE, for example, and I know what your answer is going to be sports centers <laughs> i can almost anticipate this straight away we took him to the etihad for a training session or something but do you think there is that element of you have to be relatively affluent to do it well i mean actually no i really don't think it is i think what you need is time i mean money always helps no one i'm not going to deny that money gives you options that does in any any frame of life yeah. but what you need is time often giving up that time means you have less money so home educators are on the whole tend to be more on the skid side because they're not able to do that full-time working and yeah so you, absolutely yeah. you know you look for the full-time resources when your main resource is you as a parent and the things that you can find and you know there's libraries there's internet a lot of that is available and there's other people you know pe like at the home ed group they'll spend a couple of hours playing capture the flag you know 20 teenagers running around and yeah <laughs> that's that's exercise and they're obviously yeah. and then you focus in on the things that are important to your child so mm. as i said we pick you know one or two things that we can't do in a free way and are important to them do you think they, do you ever do you ever think what if my child missed out on that inspiring teacher the one who got the one who people always say that's the teacher who got me into x y z do you ever think 
I, as home educator in this more facilitating role, might not have been able to. Well, you're one person at the end of the day, right? So it's like there's a limit. Yeah. To, yeah. But that's where bringing in, you know, other experiences. It doesn't, you know, again, within a school, there's a limited number of, of people and teachers that you're exposed to. It's still a fixed amount. It's still a bit random whether it happens to be the one that, you know, you interact with. Um, so kind of an example from us, we, we always go to the local library a lot. And just one summer, they had a storyteller in. And my kids really engaged with that. They like stood up and joined in. And a little while later, we went to the library and they said, oh, that storyteller has has told me about this competition in, you know, landed no kind of an hour away um, and they could take part. And so they got into that and they decided they wanted to. And they went off to the, and they stood up on the stage. You know, they told their story, the storytelling competition. They got prize because everybody got prize. And, you know, they loved it. And as part of that, there were some free workshops and they saw someone playing the harp. We we're in Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of them decided she wanted to learn the harp. And so yeah. I kind of, you know, went out searching for that. So those those sparks of inspiration, you know, they're all around. They're in the world. And you can get them yeah. you know, in all sorts of different ways. No, I think so. I mean, I, I was more thinking of that sort of relationship, that that sort of teacher-student relationship that can build into something that then inspires someone to do something if you know what i mean like it's slightly different because that's like me going let's say i go to well i was going to say goodison park there katie but that would have been a massive mistake if i went to um anfield you know and got inspired to be a footballer because i saw those players playing and i'm an everton fan so i've just insulted my own club but it doesn't matter um but i probably would i did say to i did text my dad earlier and say i wish you hadn't made me an everton fan but that's a different matter altogether um but let's imagine I went to football, watched the game of football, got inspired to be a footballer. That's slightly different than a teacher building a relationship with me, which then nurtured me into into a particular pathway. Yeah. And, you know, again, there are lots of different ways that that mentor relationship happens. And that doesn't always happen in school. I mean, I broadly enjoyed school. I can remember a few teachers in a few moments, but there wasn't, I didn't have that throughout my entire time at primary or secondary school I don't think you know no, it, it doesn't no. always happen sometimes it's, um and you know, we've got a friend had that relationship with you know, someone next door who's got a carpentry workshop and they're really into that and they've you know developed that that mentorship over time in that way or there's you know we've been involved yeah. in the community woodland there's those sorts of yeah for sure opportunities and relationships are there too okay it's been fascinating sort of talking to you i feel like listen i'll have to we'll have to do this again maybe in in 10 years when your <laughs> eldest is like 27 we'll have to do like a review show <laughs> i'll get them on here. um but um no it's really fascinating to to find out a little bit more i could have talked to you a lot longer about it um so thank you very much and obviously everybody if you are sort of listening live then definitely um give katie a follow she's at ktf1978 on x um so yeah thank you katie and um yeah speak to you soon yeah we are now cheers katie bye we have now got um david coming on just before i introduce david um big shout out to our sponsors on the show this evening john cat educational if you are a reader of educational uh stuff then look no further than john cat go to johncatbookshop.com 
Um, have a look at their new releases and anything that tickles your fancy, you can get 20% off it by using the code JCTTR2324. That includes if you're a head teacher like David, buy all your staff a book, right? Get yourself a 20% discount off it. Um, now, David. Yes. Um, I, I Welcome. How are you? Yeah, all right, actually, to be honest. Not so bad. It's nice to be on here, Tom. Well, thank you very much for giving up the time to come on, especially at such um, short notice. Because um, I, I I don't know whether to call you Mister Clipboard Scales, um, because you you have become slightly synonymous with a with your picture of a pink clipboard. Um, so I wondered to begin with David, which is the inevitable question: what what do you think of the whole? What 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 brought all that together for you? What Tell me about it. Tell me the story of the clipboard. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we're a TLAC school, so Teach Like a Champion that I'm sure many of your listeners will know about. Um, and we do something called Active OBS. So we look, walk around the classroom, we hunt for misconceptions, hunt for misunderstandings, and we write them on the clipboard. Um, it, it's quite simple, really. It's, it's nothing spectacular. People have been doing it for many, many years. Under um, Teach Like a Champion, obviously, it's got a certain branding. Um, all I did was post a picture of our £1.49 generic pink, shocking pink, should I say, clipboards um, online. And next thing you know, people are saying I'm sponsored by Doug Limov. Are the microchips inside the clipboards? I can tell you there are not. Um, Doug Limov didn't sponsor them. In fact, I ended up uh, getting a, uh, an apologetic message from uh, Doug Limov. Um, who said he was sorry for all of the fuss. Um, but it, all, all, I, all I was doing was just showing off a £1.49 clipboard online. Um, but that's Twitter for you, isn't it, Tom? Do you think that, like, a lot of the sort of commentary that I saw, I did, I did understand the element of sort of... I guess there were a lot of people saying it's gimmickry and it it's just sort of... They were saying it's it's literally just what teachers, in a way, have always done, like observing the the students learning, right, and and sort of remembering, like I say, remembering it's happening in the moment. But it's almost like the criticism was, why do I? One of the criticisms was, why do I codify? Why do I need to record everything that I'm doing? Does it? I guess my question would be is, do, do, the critics would ask. Does that take the joy and spontaneity out of things? Um, not for me, um, and not for our staff either, really. I mean, the, um, yeah. the I found it quite funny. There was a there was a, one member of Twitter who posted a picture of a pad of paper and a pen, um, and said, "How about you just use these?" Well, if you're trying to walk around a classroom with a pad of paper and nothing to lean on, it's quite hard to read your own writing, and mine's quite hard to read at the best of times, anyway. Um, I guess the, the caricature of schools like ours is that um, you can't be yourself. Everyone's an automaton or robot um, and nothing couldn't be further from the truth. When I was teaching in the same school, um, I was a very different character from the person in the next classroom down the road. Um, what we want is passion, energy, a love of teaching children, yeah. a love of your subject. Um, and we want people's personalities to shine through. But what really helps is if your employer doesn't just leave you to your own devices and, you know, if there is an active ob strategy, then you have a clipboard that you're not having to pay for in your own pocket. Just so happens our house colours pink, which offends some people, it seems to be. 
<laughs> what's what's the i mean how's the staff sort of, of the, are the staff buying into this are they on board well i, I i'm not a head teacher who stays in my office really i tend to um, be out seeing lessons dealing with issues as they arise on the corridors and every lesson you see there's a shocking pink clipboard either on the desk um, or with them as they walk around. Um, that's not to say that active OBS is the only strategy you can use to check for understanding. There are lots of other ways to do that, whether that's um, the fantastic mini whiteboard or whether that's just asking a question or whether that's a call and response or any other different type of strategy. But if you are um, wanting to make notes as you walk around or record merits, demerits, or if you're wanting to write down misconceptions people have, it's just a really good way of keeping track of it so you can do something about it. Um, but it's not every time, it's not all the time. Okay, so let's, let's yeah, I mean, as I say, we've, we've sort of been through the, the sort of critique of that and, and you've mentioned some of it as well. Um, I guess I think one of the criticisms I've seen online was it's, and I've seen this before, to be fair, in, in various different means, is like, this is teaching repackaged. It's something that's always happened that's been repackaged into um, a strategy and then people sort of then get frustrated or whatever because, because of that, you know? Um, or, yeah, that, that's the, that I would say was the key sort of criticism or line that I saw there. But I wanted to ask you about TLAC wider strategies as well, because I talked in the past, I've done many infamous shows actually about slant. Um, and uh, I wondered, what is your, do you use slant? Is that one of the things you use? Yeah, so that's our way of um, getting quiet in the classroom. Um, I've been in schools where it's a hand up or... Um, you see sort of people where they left to fend themselves and there's variants of shh and three, two, one. But three, two, one slant's what we use, yeah. And it, it works um, because it's a house style and because we teach how to use it. And um, there's not been any backlash for us, um, I'd say. Yeah, okay. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that I sort of pitched to, well, to various guests that I've had about slant is um, that it, it's it's been criticised in some quarters by people who believe that it is not um, an inclusive strategy when it comes to neurodivergent learners who can't do certain things that would, would be involved in slant. So I'm wondering what, what reasonable adjustments do you make when it comes to slant, if, if any, or do you feel that you don't really need to? Yeah, it's an interesting one and quite um, current, isn't it? A lot of people are sort of, there's a bit of a backlash against some of those strategies. But what I'd say is, is that we're a 22% SEN school, we're a, and for what it's worth, we're a 50% free school meal school. Um, and actually, it's the neurodivergent children and the most vulnerable who often say that this is a good thing because they know where they stand. You are saying, I want you to sit up, I want you to listen. I don't want you to have anything in your hands and I want you to look at me and you're saying it in one word rather than many. And that clarity is something that many neurodivergent students really do value. Now, of course, that's not going to be for everyone. I think if there was a disability, we'd certainly make adjustments for something like that um, if it wasn't possible to do it. 
Um, and if somebody did have a struggle with something like that, then we'd make uh, reasonable adjustments, uh, allowances. But that tends to be few and far between because the school that we've designed and the school that many others following a sim similar model have done is they've worked around the most vulnerable student. Um, and the student who has the most difficulties accessing learning. And if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for the whole school and it can work for everyone. And it simplifies school activities. So it's easier for teachers, it's easier for students, and that means that everyone can succeed. And that's certainly my experience of it. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a very sort of, you know, there's a big divide, isn't there, in terms of what people think about it. Um, do, do you think that from a teacher perspective, do you do you require the teachers to use slant? Do you do you do you say to them, look, these are the techniques we expect you to use in every lesson? Yeah, because if you don't do that, the problem without having a house style is everyone gets confused. And your limited time for staff CPD is ill-focused because somebody might be running a hands-up policy. Somebody might be running a slant policy. Somebody might be running a different policy. And the people that lose out in that chaos are the children. And you mentioned their neurodivergence. They're expecting to see the same set of routines in the classroom to feel safe, to understand what's expected of them, to avoid getting in trouble, to uh, know how to be successful, all of these different things. So it's actually reducing anxiety. It's increasing clarity, but it's also meaning that you don't have to explain um, in the teaching staff of 50, 50 different rule sets. So it's actually just saving everybody time and it's reducing anxiety and it's improving the effectiveness of the school. That's the benefit of a house style and slant is just one of those elements of a house style that we have. Well, tell us, I mean, because that, for, for, for me... Um just thinking about it i and i probably would struggle to not be a little bit too freelance let's say with my you know um with my ways um i think that you know um i think there's a lot of teachers out there who are who might be you know a little bit more eccentric or who might be a little bit more sort of free freelancy let's say about their ways and you know do, does it i guess the critics would say does that sort of drown out the creativity of a of an individual teacher as in like you know i i don't you know there might be some teachers who say i don't need to use the this technique or that technique because i don't need to i've, I've got a level of if you like control in the classroom i'm managing the classroom in a way where I personally don't don't need or see value in these strategies, but I have to use them because, as you say, of the house style. I mean, do, are you basically saying, I, I'm saying, we'll sacrifice that for the greater good in your view? I don't think you have to sacrifice personality at all. I think that structure is freeing and enabling because by not having to focus on exactly how you're going to get quiet just knowing that that will work because it works everywhere in school means that you can show exactly that personality and you can use that subject knowledge you have you can show the passion you have for your subject the passion you have for working with young people and you can be quirky and eccentric you know i can see um some of our teachers are listening um and i know that they're very very different personalities whether that's um our teach first year two 
um, English teacher who's uh, very, very quirky and has a, a wonderfully wry sense of humour, um, or whether that's um, our vice principal, um, Julie, who I can see is listening now. And you can see that real passion for drama just shining through, but that absolute structure so children feel safe and secure. You get all of that from uh, having that structure, but without it. And I don't know if you've worked in any of these schools, Tom. You, I've, you... Worked in, I've worked in one that I would say yeah. was, a, was, a, was a school that adopted many of those strategies, uh, but only in, only in the short term, only for a period of perhaps three months. Um, right. And, and, you know, and, and the fact I wasn't a permanent full-time member of staff there meant that, you know, probably, I, you know, it was obvious that I wasn't going to be there after the end of that contract, if that makes sense. So I didn't have, I didn't have to buy in to X, Y, Z if that makes sense. Yeah, but I, I've also worked in schools that are um, very, very different. Everyone pulls in different directions and it's hard draining work because you're fighting against a tide where everyone does their own thing. Nobody's mutually supportive, but um, we have supply teachers who come and teach at our school and they actually want to stay because it's so ordered. It's so easy to understand. It's just so much common sense. Simplicity rules because when everything's simple, you can focus on the complex stuff that you're trying to teach, but it allows you to be yourself. And that's a real misconception that sometimes um, people people get with this type of school. Mm, mm. No, absolutely. I mean, in terms of sort of, I know Doug's here as well, Doug Lamov. So welcome, Doug. Because um, we're sort of talking Doug, about... Thanks for the kind message about the clipboards, Doug. It was my fault, not yours. <laughs> um, but I was, I wanted to ask about the the other elements of the thing because you mentioned that's one part of the house style the, the, the using slant for example is what mm. what what are the other things in there in that in that toolkit that you would expect teachers to to use or or, or to display yeah so um firstly uh, we would i guess a feature of our school would be that we have uh, booklets um you know some listeners today might have seen pictures of our very large printer uh, which means we can print these on in-house. But that just reduces all of that cutting, sticking, how many glue sticks are working today, you know, where are the glue sticks? Everything is in a booklet. The booklet's decided by the group, by the department, um, and from next year, the wider subject team. So it means you can decide what should be taught and what things aren't going to be taught. We can prioritise reading which is going to make a big difference. I think that's something that a lot of people coming to our school would see and might find unusual. Um, but the other thing to say about that is that it's, there's other TLAC techniques that have been really uh, beneficial to us, whether that's, um, you know, and it's all simple stuff, Tom, you see. It's not, um, people would always criticise it as reinventing the wheel or it's always been done. Absolutely, because teaching has been good for a very long time using very basic techniques using mm -hmm. questioning um, whether that's all hands up questioning or whether that's a cold call a call and response whether that's circulating a classroom or working the clock and saying you've got 30 seconds left 30, 20 seconds to go let's make sure that we finish um, all of these techniques are just simple teach like a champion techniques um, and what i think doug has done uh, a fantastic job of is just writing this down in a very very simple way uh, that enables it to be really well understood and it's just common sense but really well written um really cohesive common sense 
um, that put together just help you be a really good teacher. So that's why we buy into it. And I haven't done that thing where, you know, you take Kagan structures and call them collaborative learning structures and or anything like that. It is Doug's work and we're really pleased to be able to uh, do the best we can with it. Mm. In terms of, I mean, I wanted to ask you about um, your, your school, actually, because your school and, and I've seen the, the video that you've posted on your on your Twitter account there of I think it was BBC sort of visit. I don't know what it was, but I watched it anyway. Um, <laughs> and yeah. And in that video, you sort of detail the, the story, if you like, of, of your school. Um, now, how long have you been there for? Well, I I joined in um, January last year, um, and then in March of last year, I became a principal, taking my first headship. So, how how did that feel then? Because this this school, you know, I'm sure you won't mind me saying, you know, is well, it, it sounds quite tough to me. <laughs> to, be, to be absolutely honest with you, David, it, it it has a feel about it that sort of says to me. This could be, you know, um, a bit of a sort of baptism of fire, so to speak. Um, so, you know, were you nervous about that or is that something you relish? Do you, do you wake up and go, come on, boys and girls? <laughs> oh, I'm just right. I've always I'm really passionate about working in challenging schools. So I did um, I did teach first back in the old days, what, well, what it seems to be now. Um, and I made that commitment to address educational disadvantage. And myself from Teesside, um, and just went to the local comprehensive, I went to the local sixth form. Um, you and sound I sound like a politician now, David. You're not standing for election, are you? <laughs> I am not. Um, don't but, worry, you, know, you don't need to prove your working class credentials to me. <laughs> I wouldn't say working class, Tom, but um, certainly um, went, went to a normal school and just did quite well at it. Um, now, if you if you think that you've got something to give education, you give it to those that need it most. And when I worked in challenging schools, I, I just found very similar problems with all of those challenging schools. The biggest single problem was behaviour. That was the thing holding them back. And if it wasn't behaviour, it was leadership. And if it was leadership, that's probably why there was bad behaviour. That was my experience of challenging schools, whether that was whole school riots in one school, whether it was um, just regularised staff assaults or um, fights or inappropriate children behaviour or disruption. All of those things were common features. And I have to tell you, when I started at Woodfield, I knew um, the school had a reputation. I was apprehensive. I think that um, the majority of people told me that I was making a mistake and I shouldn't take it on. Um, but I've really fallen in love with the place because um, it just needed um, work. It was a difficult place to work. I had my ribs fractured by a child um, in the first couple of months. Um, staff assault was quite regular. Children would just push and shove. You see that in the Look North video. Um, and everything that's done, I've done with the team has just been pure common sense. You know, we have a uniform policy. How about we enforce that one? They're struggling to pay for it. How about we help them financially with the uniform? Um, perhaps uh, they should walk on the left to avoid them bashing into one another. Um, perhaps we should uh, enforce 
rules around meal times or increased structures or have queuing or put lines on the floor. Like all of these things, um, when you're an outsider, seem like might seem like control freakery or um, a maniacal want for adult authority and control. But I can tell you that chaos isn't very nice either. Um, and the most vulnerable are the ones that suffer. And the ones that win in chaos uh, are the vagabonds and the rogues. They're the ones that win. Let me ask you a couple of questions on that, though. Um, the first one would be, you know, and, and obviously you can't really answer this in a way, but one of my very cynical things that I always think, because I have a very cynical um, mind, which is probably a bad thing, but I would always, I always think it's easier to sell a story about a school than, than the actual reality of it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, 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 I'm not suggesting by any means, um, David, that, that you are doing that, but... I am saying that how do you know that you are changing things in a, in a real and substantial way? As in, how do you really know that? I think there's, I think there's lots of ways of measuring it. Um, there's lots of anecdotal information and we've had um, lots of visitors who would um, talk to you about it. And if you ever wanted to visit Tom, you'd be more than welcome. Um, it, it's, it's a genuinely, it's it's been quite a remarkable journey, and I think staff would tell you tell you this too. It was a school that felt like it had very little hope because it had had an attendance figure of eighty percent. Um, it has been a school of concern. It was caught up in the WCAT scandal. Um, it's a series of different buildings that don't look particularly well loved. It was well known for being um, a, a very dangerous school, a very difficult school to work in. It had a reputation, shall we say. Now, that isn't the case now. They're, they Children are courteous, they, they're polite. They're incredibly polite, actually. Um, they'll walk on single file in the left in almost near silence. Lessons are almost silent. Children are really happy to be there. Is, children... is that a good thing, David? Is that silence a good thing? Because, you know, to, to sort of bring this into the conversation, um, and again, you, you don't need to comment on this, but, you know, members of the NASUWT at another school in Astria, as you'll, you'll know this, they went on strike over the strict behaviour policies. They, they said that they had an issue with the ensuring of silence in the corridors and classrooms unless pupils were given permission to talk. Um, and the and NASUWT, which, to be fair, is, is probably, you know, quite sort of, I, I would say it backs generally sort of stuff when it comes to behavior it tends to take the line of sort of trying to support teachers and groups of teachers when it comes to behavior and trying to get it better but the union in this case said that the policies were heavy-handed um and and that you know they they weren't allowing the, the teachers to manage behavior fairly or proportionately but do you feel that is the case where you are where we are, there was no choice but to improve behaviour. Staff would have their doors locked in their PPA and would often not have PPA because children would just be running around the school. You might be talking about 70 to 100 children running around the corridors, not going to lessons, sometimes climbing on the roof. You know, the, the, the fact that you would then have a corridor where you say good morning, good afternoon, I like you. I think you're looking smart today. How was your swimming competition? That's the type of quiet we're talking about where children are actually able to have that warmth, that check in, 
that experience of courtesy and someone caring on every interaction as they walk down the corridors while being free from the pushing, the shoving, the harassment, the bullying, which is just about disappeared. You know, it could always happen in our school. There could always be a problem. But actually, it's a courteous place to be. And that's the benefit of what those rules bring. You know, this structure mm. is bringing freedom. These, uh, the increase in be- uh, the improvements in behaviour is genuinely life-changing. Children who were just running around corridors now mm. sat in, able to recite Shakespeare. It's genuinely transformational. Now, I don't know how I can convince your listeners, apart from taking <laughs> it but, you know, we've had Tom Bennett come and say, top 10% of behaviour in schools I've seen. That was from Tom Bennett. Ofsted said, improving quickly. Um, if you look at um, if, if you look at our attendance, it's up. If you look at our suspensions, they're down. If you look at our progress rate, it's the most improved in the city. So there's lots of hard measures, but actually our visitors say this is something quite special. But if you ask the kids, they're delighted, you know. And it, and the ones that perhaps want to challenge a little bit more, um, they're sort of a bit conflicted. They'll go, yeah, I don't like the rules, but actually it's better now we have the rules than before we did. So you know, proofs in the pudding, really. Yeah, I mean, what what would you say to those who, who would sort of argue that it's it's all very robotic, it's it's all very sort of factory system, you know, the kids in lines and everybody, you know, doing what they're, you know, it's almost like all the ants marching sort of thing. What what would you say to that criticism, that, it, that it's sort of, you know, it might kill the the individuality, if you like, from from the students. I mean, you're saying, you know, and also there's those who would say, well, if it's scripted, if if the if if everything's scripted, even the politeness, then is it is it real? Is it just almost like rehearsing for a play every day? If that makes sense. Yeah, I, that's I, not me. That's not me saying that. No, no, I know. That I'm just presenting the, the arguments that you will get. I, I would just say that that's not my lived experience of school. Yeah, there's there's lots of structure and order, but I'd suggest that given the way I've talked about the school, that's what it needed. Um, mm. But also to say that genuinely, uh, when I started, I didn't experience a large degree of courtesy off-the-cuff conversations with children um, but they've just been at PGL for the weekend um, apparently they've got very good at throwing axes which we either should be really happy about or really worried about um, but they've brought back me brought me back little gifts I've got this uh, bendy pink man um, that with uh, my initials on the back because we have pink everything um, and it's genuinely like a nice interaction you have with children. And when you are talking to them, it's about something um, really nice or what they want to talk to you about. But that couldn't happen in the chaos. I'd have no time to talk to anybody in the chaos. But if we anyone, Yeah, if anyone's just joining the conversation, David is referring to Clipboard Gate, which was where David bought lots of pink clipboards and the teachers in the school use a technique called active observation where well you say david again succinctly you, they observe the things that's happening in the classroom and they write it down basically isn't it in a nutshell yeah. yeah yeah um so that was that was clipboard gate you missed that bit if you're just joining now i'm sorry you know listen back um about clipboard gate it was it was at the beginning um i wanted to ask you like what do you how do you go about because you've you've mentioned this, you believe there's been this big change. You've talked about how you think you know that. 
So let's let's let me dig into that change then. If you had to succinctly say what are the things that drove that change, mm-hmm. what what did you actually do in it's, terms of policies, right? Because it's very easy to say it changed, right? And I've already said there'll be those who would argue, well, it doesn't matter who visits because anyone can visit for three hours and see beautiful things, you know, mm-hmm. and whether that's Ofsted or anyone else. So that's what people might say about that. They might say, well, so what? Some people might say, well, the results of a school don't necessarily reflect behavior or culture or attitudes or happiness and all the other things. There'll be, you know, there'll, there'll be arguments against all of those things. So what I'm saying is, what I'm asking you next is, let's say that that change has happened. What what were the key drivers? What were the key things? Tell me. I think you've got to start and build credibility by winning something. You know, in in our in that case, it was I just got sick of the fact they're wearing coats indoors. So no coats, no coats indoors. Um, within about two or three days, there were very very few coats indoors, uh, but it gave everyone um, on the senior team, I think, a sense that. Um, actually, we can win this. This is winnable because there's coats off indoors. And then it was walk on the left. Let's all walk on the left. And the vast majority of kids were walking on the left. And I think that there's a, there's a failure to, to understand that children don't really know stuff outside their educational experience in the school setting you've got. It's not like they think like we do and go, oh, Michaela this and um, what about uh, school 21 that? It's not they don't have that conception at all. They just go to school. That's their conception. So when you say, actually, this is what we stand for and this is not okay and this is okay and this is what we want, the vast majority of children will go with you, especially if when you say it, you mean it. Um, And so then that's the other thing I'd say. Um, Two really important things, courtesy and certainty. So often people talk about warm strips, but I think that's got overdone and sometimes the message lost here and there. So um, I like to talk about courtesy and certainty. So we're courteous and we're polite to one another, but there's a certainty to our actions. When we say this is going to happen, that is what's going to happen. Now, that gives a boundary. Children need to understand boundaries that they can operate safely in. And in fact, children are crying out to us to have those boundaries for them so that they can feel safe and sometimes so they can push against them. it's the boundary that us adults need to put in place for them for their safety for Mm. their security but by by giving that courtesy by giving that certainty and it it started to make the world a difference and then it was just on one hill to the next hill we've done this so now let's do uniform so we did uniform Um, and then the culture started to look different the school started to look different Um, and at the same time as you're doing all of this with um, student behaviour you're also working on lessons and a lot of great work being done uh, in um, teaching and learning uh, and a big shout out to Julie uh, Atkins who I know is listening um, did a huge amount of work meaning that classrooms were disruption free and that staff had those structures that I talked about so that when you go from lesson to lesson children experience the house style so you make the best use of your time in lessons and then you're just trying to make things more and more efficient you talked about you know, walking in lines everywhere. Well, um, changeovers used to t- take 15 minutes. <laughs> so children wouldn't ever get to lesson. Um, but by having a, by, by having a lineup, you they get to lesson now within about um, two minutes. 
can can I ask you, Dave? You're touching, sort of circling back a bit, but on the same sort of issue of this idea of trying to turn around things. You said you had your ribs broken, fractured, fractured. So how did that happen then? And what um, what was you? Yeah, go on. I was just uh, a child decided to punch me in the ribs, um, and I didn't think anything of it. But then I struggled to breathe. It was hard to move. All of the rest. Um, and why and did they? Really... Are you allowed to tell me why they did that? Um, just some things children do, and as I say, it was a chaotic school. There was it, corridors were very, very difficult. It was known as a difficult school, and when I'd said on the BBC pushing and shoving, yeah, it also means stuff like that. So you know, the, the 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 crises in schools like that are also about staffing and recruitment and retention. You know, you you need great staff, the best staff to work in that type of school, and we have a great staff body. But try recruiting. A maths teacher in a school like that you know so my social media presence was pretty much determined by the fact that I wanted to be able to recruit people to the school and I really wanted to be able to say to everyone who will listen look we're under new management and things are different now and without that social media presence we wouldn't be able to have got the transformation that we've been able to do um, and of course it's still ongoing and it's not finished um, yeah. and, I, and to be honest the way I am it probably never will be but um, <laughs> It's it, it, you need you needed that to break out of it. A, a school that is under pan, under people admission number, uh, in a challenging circumstance, offset inadequate, is going to struggle to move and struggle to get the right people in there. So you're fighting against quite a lot to get that turned around, and so well, it does require a lot of determination um, and a great team. Here we have. Yeah, you mentioned Ofsted. They they said last year that the Astria is strong and improving, but exclusions remain too high in inverted commas. So, to to presumably sort of, you know, how is that side of it going? <laughs> you know, to be to be sort of more general, have you had to take a lot of action, David? In 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 you know, I know there was a sort of infamous interview over the weekend where. I think it was in Scotland. I don't actually know who was being interviewed, but they were asked. It was somebody uh, to do with the Scottish government, I think. And they were being asked, you know, would you exclude a child who punched a, a pregnant woman in the stomach? And she sort of couldn't answer that question, really. So I'll ask you, if one of your students punched a member of staff, is, is there a stock response to that? Um, we would take the strongest a action based on the scenario that we could possibly take. Yes, we would suspend. Yes, we consider permanent exclusion. We shouldn't be doing that type of thing. If you go into a hospital, um, you'll see uh, a sign that says, do not abuse our staff. You'll see the same on the train. You'll see that in shops nowadays as well. Um, why should schools be any different? There should be a culture of courtesy and respect. We have a code of conduct. I've done a podcast about it. Um, not my most controversial podcast recently, but um, it is uh, it, 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 it's out there. Now, in terms of um, in but terms are of, your are your rates of exclusion too high? Yeah, and they're reducing, so they're significantly reduced, and they'll continue to reduce. And that's come about because we teach children how to behave. We have half termly um, visioning mornings where we say this is what we do and why. Um, we have reboarding. We have um, just about every intervention under the sun, uses of external agencies, um, our own internal alternative provision. We do all of these different things to support and prevent 
um, suspension and exclusion because that is the last resort and that is not what we want to be doing. We want children to be learning and in classrooms. But the thing is, is that you also have to draw a line somewhere and this is sometimes the safest and most appropriate thing to do um, at times. And that is why the law exists for principals and schools to be able to do that. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think that... You mentioned school attendance earlier and, you know, I've just had Katie on there who was, was talking about, you know, she's a home educator. So, she, you know, we were talking about that for the first half of the show. And, you know, I mean, do do you think that school attendance is as important as it was before the pandemic, for example? I'll tell you what I think's happened. I think that the social contracts got rewritten at a time when there were parties in Downing Street. And it, got, it happened in a way that's not going to support education and isn't going to support um, the civic responsibilities that we want to develop. Um, and so that social contract needs redrawing and rebalancing. Um, you are not going to get uh, people who can profess British values like the rule of law um, or be able to um, promote liberal values if they haven't had a great education in which they can read proficiently and write well and, and are mathematically capable. And that only happens when they attend school and a great school. So that social contract needs rewriting because our institutions need improvements in strength. Um, and that improvement in strength is partly reflected in this attendance issue. Now, that is low, partly because um, things like mental health services have essentially seen their funding um, decreased quite considerably. But also people, people like social care, um, the police, uh, other services that work with schools um, don't have the funding and strength that they once had. Um, and also schools need to be supported in this work to rebalance that social contract. That means stronger public institutions um, and schools need support to do it. Um, so attendance is vital. Um, it is very much down on where it was pre-pandemic. Schools up and down the country are struggling with that. Um, and yes, we're struggling too. But the situation is improving just very slowly. So it's going to take a large number of years to get to where the pre-pandemic levels what, were. What do you do when it comes to attendance? You, you've said it's important. I mean, what, what are the things you're doing to try and, if you think it's important, what do you do about it? I think attendance um, on the level of an individual family can be quite complex, can't it? Because in some cases, it can just be about incentivization. Um, and a lot of schools would have rewards and uh, nudges and pushes and positive messages here and there. Mm. Um, and on the other side, you know, there are um, things like enforcements and, and, and things like that. Um, but what we do in between is everything ranging from um, safeguarding work to make sure that people have the right support to help their children in the situations they may have. There may be vulnerabilities and um, we do that safeguarding work. It might be school anxiety, school refusal. Um, and in our school's case, just to be totally upfront, it's a lack of trust. Um, in our ability to um, to do the job we're meant to do. I've mentioned the history of the school. 
So we've got to build that trust. We've also got to work with families on whatever the issue might be, whether that's through safeguarding, pastoral or SEND. Um, but then also we've just got to raise this profile. We've also got a minibus that does the rounds. We've got a fantastic attendance team um, who'll knock on doors, who'll make the phone calls um, and who'll be relentless. Um, but we've got to build a culture of attendance. Um, and and in our school, that's from a culture of um, attend when you want, if you want. You know, that's the scale of the challenge we've got to do. And I know it's not just us. I know that's up and down the country, but it's a crucial piece of work that schools need external support with and can't do alone. You mentioned about the reading and writing there. Surely, though, that could be done in home education. Surely, you know, I mean, Katie's children who we were just talking about there, they weren't educated at school. And they're sort of, you know, gone off to college, gone off to the, will go off to the world of work. They they are flying, probably, academically, from what she was implying. Yeah, well, I, I know a lot of home educators, as it would happen. Um, and they are really wonderful people doing great jobs with their children. Um, and those children are really bright, smart, wonderful, passionate, um, caring, lovely people who I'm sure will go on to do yeah. those things. Um, however, if I just refer you to some of the types of home education um, cases that some people listening to this will be dealing with, or indeed we might be dealing with, it's mm. parents who wouldn't always be capable of that, um, mm. removing their child from uh, formal schooling, um, usually because of uh, something they don't like about formal schooling. That's the thing that I am seeing mm. more often um, than not. And so I, I do not believe... I'm afraid um, that all of those homeschooling experiences are equal. I think there are going to be some children who are not learning an awful lot um, mm. and in fact are, are then behind with their studies. Um, and also it, it's, it's then very hard to maintain that safeguarding relationship and keep children safe. And as I mentioned, um, there's a social contract that needs to be redrawn um, in some of these communities. Um, and that isn't going to happen when people opt out of um, the medicine, even if the medicine isn't what they want to have. Mm -hmm. It sounds as though you've introduced a lot of, you, you've really gone for a big change, right? So when it comes to the staff, what changes have you made, if any, when it comes to accountability? for staff and expectations of staff um, as you've come into the school? Not not just you, perhaps it's part of a wider change, but what, you know, have there been any changes in that respect? So just for, firstly, I don't believe in formal high stakes lesson observations, you know, me walking around and appearing menacing. Um, if I am at all uh, talking to staff, it's mainly to give uh, praise, encouragement or little changes that they can make. We call it no stakes feedback. There isn't that type of culture. It's an open door policy where you can walk into any SLT lesson, um, you can walk into anybody else's lesson, and what we want to do is celebrate and raise up everyone. I think that with teaching staff, at least, um, really the best job we can do is reduce workload, increase simplicity, so that the job becomes much easier. You'll know that there's a recruitment crisis and a recruitment crisis that will get worse. You know, teaching in our school, you don't have to stay up all night planning your own lessons. The lessons are planned as a group. 
um, and if you were to join our school, they're already there. Your job is to make that relevant, prepare for it, know how to deliver it. Um, in terms of um, routines, learn the routines and they'll run themselves because the children do that everywhere in school across the curriculum. There's no marking to take home. You don't have to take home piles of books. All of these things reduce workload um, and make it easier and nicer and more pleasant to be a teacher, especially when behaviour is good in the school. Where I'd say a lot more rigour has come in, it's more in the pastoral side, the leadership side, and increasingly with curriculum leaders, uh, where we are doing a lot of intensive curriculum work, uh, which is hard, difficult, intellectually rigorous, um, but rewarding. Um, but for senior leaders, you'll you'll have seen pictures I'll have put on um, social media about how we run the day, how we know where everyone is all the time, how we hold each other accountable. Um, and I think those systems where pastoral and senior team um, can do that just means that teachers can teach, leaders can lead. Um, you know, and if you want to be a leader, you're going to have to work really hard. Of course you are. But if you're a member of staff, then uh, a member of teaching staff, then you can um, have great subject knowledge and be passionate about working with children. Um, but you can prepare for your individual lessons, but not lose your life to a job that shouldn't take that from you. And that's the benefit of the school model we're promoting. Yeah. Do, do you think that, um, that also it, going back to the uh, and I know this isn't your school, but it's obviously within the same um, sort of trust. But within that that strike action by NAS in, in another school, just to be clear, it's not your school. But one of the things that did come up there was the staff dress code. Do, do you have a staff dress code? We we do have staff dress code. Um, it's, you love all yeah. these questions, David, don't you? They're great. <laughs> yeah. It's not a problem for me. I, I just think a lot of trusts um, do have that. I'm sure there are trusts that don't. Um, but there are also lots of trusts that do. But also you're in um, an area where perhaps... Uh, there's an aversion to school uniform and you're asking children to dress um, in a certain way and hold them accountable to the top button being done up, um, to wearing black leather polishable shoes, shirts being tucked in, which might seem archaic to a lot of people in workplaces nowadays. But if th that is what you're asking of children, children do get quite annoyed uh, when staff waltz in and um, look like they don't give the same level of care to their outfit. I mean, we have um, there's some. What does that look like, though, in practice? Well, you know, give me some tangible examples here of the staff dress code. Um, the things, uh, yeah, shirt and tie, um, a suit, tailored trousers, um, a jacket. If you're walking around corridors, jacket removed. Um, if you're in the classroom, um, that type of thing. Something that looks um, business-like for. Um, those that want to dress in female attire, you know, that type of thing. So when you say jacket, so jacket in the corridor and then removed in the classroom? Yeah, um, you, you might want to, you might be more animated in the classroom, you might, uh, it might be warmer in the classroom. Um, so it allows teachers to feel a little bit more comfortable. But um, in the corridors, we ask children to wear blazers. Um, so it's important to be consistent. Got you. So, as for, so imagine I'm a member of staff. If I sort of was wearing, if I didn't have a blazer on in the corridor, and then had a blazer on in the classroom, would would you speak to me about that? Yeah, because the children would pick the staff member up. You have to remember that children um, really have a strong sense 
of fairness. Um, and there's this sort of myth that sort of I might be or people in my position might be these characters that just um, uh, uh, just sort of make diktats from an office quite a long way away from the action. If I'm walking down the corridor and a staff member isn't wearing their jacket, then a, 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 a student's probably going to take me aside and say, he's not wearing his jacket. What are you going to do about it? So it's it's um, a self-policing system. Now, that's not to say that there can't be different rules for adults from um, children, uh, but it is to say that there is an innate sense of fairness. And if there is a difference, then you need to explain why that difference is, um, because you want I want to give the sense that we're all one team. You know, this isn't uh, Mr. Scales and his school. This is one team of staff and children working to get to university or a real alternative. But again, just to just to come back on that is, do you think that do you think some teachers I'm sure would say, and I'm guessing your answer I know what your answer to this is going to be is that you know that that's your way of doing things, which, which I think is fair enough. And if people don't like it, don't sort of get a job there in a way. But there will be those teachers who would say that is as an adult as a professional in a way demeaning or it's not sort of you know i mean okay if they're coming in in a clown outfit dressed as a clown with a little squirter and going up to the kids and sort of you know doing magic tricks that, that's like but i guess there'd be many who would say that's petty is, is sort of a jacket on jacket off in the classroom in the corridor you know does that really matter as a as a professional you know there'll be those who would argue that isn't it yeah sure and I, I i understand um I, I think i would probably take a view like what you've described tom but also just to say there are many workplaces that have expectations um around how you dress you know whether yeah. that is um a top investment banking firm or whether that's um a doctor's uh, you know in an operating theater or whether or it's football clubs uh, mcdonald's or whatever people have uniforms now we're in a situation however anachronistic you decide it is um, listening to this where children wear uniforms and um the in our in the case of our school um there is a need for a social leveler of a uniform because the discrepancies that are visible in terms of social difference um really affected children's attendance their sense of self um to the extent that when we did buy everybody a school uniform they were just delighted from these it may sound they thought they looked smart they felt proud of how they looked and the school that they were in now mm. if on one hand i say that this is necessary for children but teachers rock up in jeans shirts untucked they are going to find a difference there and it's going to be diffi difficult uh, for them to reconcile that difference so it's the nature of our context and it is um where we are as a school at the moment now there are some schools that have no school uniform there are some schools that don't have any staff dress codes but to work with these children at this place at this time that is what is required and if you are passionate about uh, disadvantage as much as i am and you see that this school is uh, where that's best addressed then that's the dress code mm. Listen, David, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And thank you so much for answering all of my questions. Um, and no problem, sort of, 
yeah, and you know, um, it's been we've been got through quite a lot there. Um, I, I just want to give a massive final shout out to our sponsor tonight, which is John Cat Educational. Uh, if you want to get yourself a professional development book, then head over to johncatbookshop.com um, and get yourself any book on the John Cat website with 20% off using the code JCTTR2324. Um, and we, we always give a massive shout out to John Cat just for supporting us at Teachers Talk Radio and really enabling us to do more of what we already do, which is which is leading the education conversation. Um, so thank you ever so much. And a huge thank you, David, for giving up the time. I know you're going to be incredibly busy as a head teacher. And one thing I will say, whether people agree or disagree with you or, or, or your approach, nobody can really doubt your passion and your, uh, you know, uh, wanting to to do the job you're doing, which in the current circumstances in any school is, is going to be a difficult one. So thank you for coming on no, um, and sharing your points of view. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, David. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, so that was, that was David Scales, um, head teacher. I hope you found that uh, conversation interesting. Um, I will be back uh, tomorrow night, actually, with Lucy. Uh, we are hosting a show with Spelling Shed. Um, you can find out more information about that on Lucy's Twitter, which is Lou Elise 1989 So if you want to follow her and find out a bit more, you can do that. And um, that'll be tomorrow, same place, 7.30pm on Spaces uh, at TTR. So we're looking specifically at how to teach spelling effectively. So if you teach literacy in any level or form in your school, then this is going to be the one. Um, and it's going to be about how to teach spelling effectively. So definitely check that out. It's tomorrow, 7.30 p.m., same place, TTR on Spaces. A huge thanks to everyone who's listened along, but particularly to Nathan behind the scenes who is administrating the space. So huge thanks to, to Nathan for doing that. And for everybody from the team TTR, Tom, Lucy, and everybody else who's been listening as well. Um, and the biggest thanks to, to all the listeners who are listening to this live, but also anybody who will be listening to it back as a podcast. Thanks for getting through to the end. As always, we appreciate it. Um, see you now and have a good evening. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.